Cities hate industrial. Even Texas, even in Dallas. We were refused for a number of projects in Dallas itself, in conservative-leaning areas. People just wanted their, called their Amazon package very quickly. They just didn't want to see the trucks. And we get that. I mean, I get that logically speaking. But with that, it's going to be harder to get the zoning or the entitlements, or it's going to be much more costly to do so uh, in the future because the gig is up on industrial. Before we could fly under the radar. Today we can't. Yeah. So that means our product gets uh, more valuable. This episode is brought to you by Juniper Square. Fort Capital has been partnered with them for over five years. It's been an incredible relationship. In contrast to the disjointed systems used by the private markets today, Juniper Square offers end-to-end solutions to meet the fundraising, investor operations, and fund administration needs for GPs. More than 1,800 GPs rely on Juniper Square to manage more than 34,000 investment entities that span over 500,000 LPs. And I couldn't believe this when I saw $1 trillion in investor equity. Purpose-built for the private markets, Juniper Square supports commercial real estate, private equity, and venture capital firms of all sizes, regardless of the number of investors or investment structure. At Fort, Juniper Square is at the forefront of every investor interaction and our entire investor relations process. They also have a great podcast you'll enjoy, The Distribution by Juniper Square. The Distribution by Juniper Square sits you down with some of the biggest names in commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity for open and honest conversations about what's happening in the private markets. I really enjoyed listening to their recent episode with Dave Eisenberg. And I think you should check it out too. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data, both on an asset and market level, and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract to close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to have you here today. And if you're listening to this, this is round two. Uh, We'll plug the first episode in the show notes where we talked a lot about how the company was built. Today, we're not going to go over that. We're going to talk more about the environment we're in. And I thought an interesting place to start would be a place where we were just talking about before we walked in here, which was you just made a comment, hey, I started selling stocks in May of 2022, which I think may be indicative of maybe a larger picture of maybe how you felt about the market or where the world was headed. So let's just start there. What was happening in May of 2022 that got your attention? Well, I'm going to start off by saying that I'm really not the best stock investor. I don't think any real estate people are. Well, maybe me in particular, (laughs) but 
one of the reasons I'm not the greatest stock investor is because I don't know enough about the individual stocks that I'm buying. Yep. And uh, real estate, we really know. And the non-liquid nature of real estate is also a benefit because it can prevent you from doing dumb things. Yep. So at the moment, at that period of time, what I felt was that inflation was certainly gonna continue to spike. I didn't have faith that the Fed had the ability to really curb inflation. The Fed has historically not been very good at that, not in real time at least. I thought the fundamentals were totally off, uh, not in the industrial space per se, but in that a lot of free money has been printed and given out and you know prices continue to increase. And then you had the infrastructure bill that was put in place and that's gonna keep certain pricing of labor and, and materials up. And all that combined just led me to believe that we were on the road to recession and I like to sleep at night. So <laughs> I sold the stocks and invested in real estate. <laughs> Real quick, why why does the infrastructure bill getting put in place keep labor and wages up and material cost? It's a good question. And the short answer is nobody pays more than the government does for things. Yep. Especially when that government is getting perceived free money. Yep. And so uh, although the uses of concrete may be different and the type of steel in certain cases may be different than they're using in general infrastructure. They're still using steel, concrete, the same labor. And that's a lot of money being put out there. So traditionally speaking, your materials and your labor would decline as construction declines. But as you well know, construction costs have not gone down. No. And I would say that there is probably 20% of the new starts that there were even 12 months ago. I'm not building near as much as you are. And so this was later on the conversation, but let's just bring it right up here. What is going on in construction? Because on one end, I can feel that they're not going down, but we do minor CapEx, we do maintenance. You're building from the ground up. Has anything given or is there anything in the next you know, quarter, year that give you any hope that prices are coming down? It's difficult to say. I'm sure that certain elements will come down. And will normalize. Like what? Maybe roofing materials. Okay. Something like that. Okay. But again, everything is tied in some way because different products or elements of those products are used in different construction types. But just from a broad-based level, if I look at it, or we when we look at it, we say, we've seen lead times come in on certain products. But especially as it relates to electrical, whether it be switch gears or different elements that you really need for powering your building. It's wonderful if you're able to finish your building on time, yep. you know, and you're able to get your roof on. But if you don't have electricity, it's a little problem to lease it. Yep. And we don't see that slowing or improving substantially. And we have not seen substantial construction price decreases. There has been a decrease in, say, lumber and certain other elements, but generally speaking, there has not been a decrease. And so it has become the new normal, at least for now. And we are not building anywhere near as much as we built. We're not by trade a merchant builder. And so that's a big benefit for us. When we're building, we're building to hold the asset in one of our vehicles. And we're building because we can't find property that's new, vintage, modern, best in class at below replacement cost. And so in markets that are very tight, where we're paying above a replacement cost for older assets, if we can find a great piece of land and build super infill, then we're going to do that because then we have, you know, a product that's built to perfection in the most modern and new standards. And we have paid replacement costs. But in today's world, if we can pay under replacement costs for new buildings, we're going to do that. What is on time these days? And maybe you could give a sense of framework, like what was building on time maybe pre-COVID and what is building on time today? Basically, the question is, how long does it take to build a building now? A heck of a lot longer than it ever did. And why is that? Is it material? Is it, is it lack of labor, all the above? It's all of the above. I would say that, I mean, before in many markets, especially in the Southeast, Southwest, you could within a year, 
a little bit over a year, you're done. Yep. Today, it's years. And in certain counties or cities, let's say in Texas, for example, I'll say not Dallas or Houston or San Antonio, <laughs> uh, it's on par or worse than some of the most bureaucratic regions on the West Coast. That's what I can say. Okay. There's you know, certain projects that we had at four years to break ground. And that's as a result of COVID did come into play where you had a lot of you know, approvals that needed to happen. People weren't in the office, et cetera. And so there was a backlog. But today it's just, I mean, we'll say the city of Austin where you had, I, I know they did a McKinsey study recently, and there were 1,400 steps before a project was approved. 1,400. And it's a bureaucracy. So all along the way, those steps fail and suddenly you got to go back to the drawing board and that prevents one from breaking ground and therefore that prevents, you know, buildings from being built on time. And on average, for every delay for, say, a, a housing project, every month of delay adds, you know, up to 10% cost increase on that home a month. It's the front page of the Fort Worth Business Press today. It's a multi-project, but the developer has something along the lines of it's it's costing forty six thousand a month every time this project gets delayed, which makes housing more expensive. Blah blah blah. So, not not surprised to hear that. You guys own fifty million square feet. You've built the company to scale, and so the question is, how do all these kind of negative impacts on building links cost actually create an advantage for y'all moving forward? It actually creates a big advantage. If you're longer term holders like us, mm-hmm. I mean, traditionally we're holding a minimum of five years. What's happening today, which just like yourself, we're gonna benefit from, which is you ride out the storm. So today, anywhere from, I mean, it's difficult to get exact numbers, but we would venture to guess that roughly 15 to 20% of the construction that was happening 12, 18 months ago is happening today. So you'll see product being completed, but that product started a couple of years back, yeah. you know, back to your earlier question, at least. And new starts where people actually acquiring land and then breaking ground, I mean, it's not happening anymore. It's, yeah. it's few and far between. And so what ends up happening, and we saw it in COVID, which was everyone stopped building, people got worried about leasing vacancies, so they gave them away for free. And then there were groups like ourselves who recognized Well, one, in that case, we were locked at home, so we all have to get our goods somehow, and that's going to bolster our space. People are going to need more warehouse, and we're not going to give away our space, and we're going to continue to buy existing. And what happened were rents almost overnight doubled by 50% because all your space was absorbed, and there was no new product to fill in that void. And so from our perspective, the fact that building has taken longer costs more and that we're in a much softer market today allows us to buy some of the best product out there and even for the stuff we completed which is best in class product not have to worry about having to lease it right away although we'd like to for good rates but we recognize that if we wait this cycle out industrial without question will not only bounce back much higher but there is not enough industrial in this country today to contend with the demand for industrial product. If every square foot of industrial space coming online now, and I think this is going to be a banner year for product being you know, delivered online, and every vacancy that is currently vacant remains vacant, you put those together and nationwide you're still under 5% vacancy overall. That's very healthy. Okay, that's in best of times in the past, 5% vacancy was normal. And today we're still going to be sub that. And then you factor in, guess what? Nobody's building any new product after this year. Well, suddenly, you know, as demand picks up again, which it certainly will, then there's going to be no product for people to go to. And they're going to pay a lot more for rents. And that benefits both of us, Chris. That does. This is, I would say you're talking dirty to me a little bit there. <laughs> okay, 
explain a little bit, go on a little bit further on a timeline. So you have everything being delivered in 2023. That's the, the largest delivery, but we can say, yeah, all those projects started 2020, 2021. That's why that's happening. Now you just said virtually nothing is getting off the ground. So could you maybe expand on how you see the next two to three years playing out and how that spike comes back into play? Like, when do you think we start feeling that vacancy heading towards zero? Obviously, we're going to have to start building more product. Like, how does that then change your outlook or not change it? But uh, how do you think about the next three years? Well, I have a magic eight ball at my office and it answers a lot of questions, but <laughs> I didn't bring it. <laughs> but how we see it is as follows. There's certainly a softening in the market. Yeah. With that said, if you look at leasing stats from 2019, you know, we're still on par with that. And those were good years. They're not 2020 leasing and it's not 2020 loan leasing, but it's still very good. So with everything that I'm saying that, you know, the market is slowed and leasing is slowed, we're not talking about like an office slowdown. We're talking about still very, very healthy numbers. Yep. That said, they're not pandemic-like numbers. So what happens going forward? Well, our belief is that there's going to be a tremendous amount of pain out there across the commercial real estate sector. There's a nationwide margin call happening. Yeah. And a lot of assets, you know, I think, I don't know the number offhand, but it was like a couple trillion over the next, you know, 18 months or so, need to get refinanced or, you know, extended. And so, especially with the new banking regulations put in place on banks, you know, above a hundred million, they have to put additional reserves associated with any quote unquote troubled loans, even if the loan's not so troubled. So for example, uh, you're an industrial builder and uh, you're a developer, you built a great asset and you assumed you were gonna sell it tomorrow at a four and a half cap. Well, that assumption is gone. Your construction costs were higher. Your TI costs were far higher and your interest was four times than you had budgeted. Okay, leasing has slowed down somewhat and you can't sell the product right away and your, your bank loan is coming due. So what happens then? Well, your banker says, okay, we really like you and so we'll let you extend, but you're gonna have to have a 10% pay down. I mean, some groups aren't gonna be able to do that. And my gut may be incorrect on this one, but it is my gut that eventually what's going to happen are the industrial assets are probably some of the only assets that are on bank books that even if somebody has trouble refinancing or extending that loan simply because of the market today, it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the asset. Banks know uh, with a lot of certainty that all of their equity is still there for sure. Yeah. So they can liquidate that asset and collect all those proceeds. So unless you're very close with that bank or you have a long relationship, eventually it doesn't benefit the bank to let you extend without that pay down because then they're going to have to mark that asset on their book mm. as troubled in some way and they're going to have to put a reserve against it, which means that, you know, that quarter at least they're taking a hit on the value of that loan. If they turn around and they sell that loan that quarter, then the next quarter they're booking a gain because they already booked that loss. Yeah. So if they sell that that loan at 100 cents on the dollar and they marked it to 70, they're getting a gain. Yep. And so there's stuff like that and that that's going to happen. And so there's going to be pain across the real estate sector and it, because all commercial real estate falls into the same bucket in the lending world. So if you have office which we know you cannot finance today. You have retail, which is very difficult, and hotels, which are also very difficult to finance. And then you have industrial, which is the bell of the ball, but still, you know, uh, if there's less lenders and they're burdened by their other real estate, it's very difficult to finance. Also, well, you know, you throw multifamily in there and that's a whole other kettle of fish of problems associated with over leverage. And you have banks just stopping to lend. And then you have life codes with only so much capacity. And you have a lot of debt funds for other reasons that have you know, pulled back. And so your lending community has reduced substantially. This is a long answer to your question. Oh, no, keep going. But the, you, know, you factor all that in. You factor 
that there was a lot of product that's coming online now. And that's only being delivered because, as you said, construction times took longer. Yep. Then you uh, bring in the fact that the capital markets is frozen. And that means people who want to sell their assets, it's very difficult for them to sell right now because you don't have the buyer pool because commercial real estate runs off leverage. At least most of it does. And then you have a softening leasing market or at least a soft leasing market, comparatively speaking, to the past two years. That means rates aren't going to grow as much. And you have those uh, borrowers who are nervous about making debt service or refinancing that loan. And so what they're doing is they're going to give away their space in order to get some cash flow. So what's going to happen is you're going to cause a reduction in some markets of the rental rates due to the demand that's there and the distress on the ownership side. And then things improve. And what happens? Well, people who had space that were nervous about it gave away their space, locked it in for a long time, and they've effectively annihilated any gains they could get later on if cap rates remain you know, at this range. And there's no new space for companies to go into. And whatever vacancies come available, well, they're going to get leased up at very high rates. Yeah. And then we're off to the races and people are going to start building again. And that's our projection. It's a very long answer to say that everything is tied together. And thankfully in industrial, we're still seeing rental rate increases and we're still seeing our ability to sell and finance, but the ability to sell and finance is a 10th of what it was, you know, 18 months ago. Yeah. Yep. Q2 is some of the best leasing we've seen. So I know we're landlords, but if you flipped it right now as a tenant, it could be a good window for a tenant maybe in 2024 to try and pick up some space if it's available and not push off till 25, 26 when that vacancy dries up and now prices are on their way back up. And I'm just, I'm giving years like we know, but I'm just kind of playing the game. Now, I'm going to go back to what I said. You know, I, I really want all listeners to recognize we are not seeing a substantial slowdown in leasing. Correct. And I think okay. I think it's fair to sit here and say 2021, 2022 are anomalies. They were I mean, anomalies. They, so to say we're 30% off of highs means we're still higher than normal. Like 2019 was a banner year. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, it was record breaking for that period of time. So now we're back there. That's still really good. With that said, I think that some tenants have taken that approach and we see that because they want to lock in longer terms. Yep. And it went from before you're having to, you know, twist some tenants' arms into longer term leases. Today, they all want to sign longer term leases. And that's another anomaly of what's going on right now. Anomaly based on logic and, and typical times, you want to lock in a credit tenant for a longer rate. And you're going to be able to then turn around and sell that asset at a great profit. Yep. Today, that's not the case. If you lock in that tenant at today's rates, even with good bumps, you lock in a 10-year deal, it's going to be very difficult for you to monetize that deal if cap rates at least remain static or close to what they are today with current financing rates. So in a few years from now, you're not going to be able to sell that asset at, you know, theoretically, a very good yield because any buyer that comes in needs that positive leverage. Right. And so, for example, if we buy an asset today, like we bought one recently in, in Orange County in California, and over the next three years, you know, I mean, based on today's rates, we bought that asset at a mark-to-market cap rate of a 7.3 or something. That's insane. It's a class A asset. It's insane. How did you get that deal? We got it from a large open-ended fund that had a broken sales process. Got it. Okay. And we got it for 30% above land value for the buildings. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted. No worries. But the point is, is that on this deal, even though the cap rate initially might have been anemic on a mark-to-market basis for those rents, because they were a little over two and a half years of term in place, we were getting a seven, seven, three or so cap. That's insane for that market. This is a market that had traditionally traded, you know, uh, definitely mid fours, but sub four, you know, at the peak. And, you know, if you lock in a long-term lease, nobody's able to get to that, call it pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. So 
if your debt is at 6%, at best today it's higher, but say at best it's at 6%, you know, that means that you need a cap rate above that if your lease goes out for a long time. Otherwise, your leverage is going to be neutral. So if you buy something for a six, six cap and your debt is a six cap, you're effectively neutral. Yep. Maybe a little better as time goes on with you know, compounding growth, but still, you're not getting any pop there. And so it reduces your buyer pool. And when you have T-bills at, call it, four, three on a 10-year basis, you're going to have a very diminished buyer pool there. And that was never the case. I would say that we did something very smart a few years ago. A couple of years back, maybe it was a, maybe 18, no, maybe it was a couple of years back, we made the decision when we saw this happening that we were going to push back on doing long-term leases because we realized as a value-add operator, because we run value-add funds, that um, on our value-add side, it didn't make sense to lock in these long-term deals if our anticipated hold period was, say, five years and we had, say, three years left. It didn't make sense because suddenly we're going to be selling a product with a much longer lease term in place and the next buyer is not going to see enough meat on the bone. And shockingly, today, if you have an asset with a three-year weighted average lease term or WALT or a little under three, versus a property that has a 10-year Walt. It could be Amazon, it could be Home Depot on that property, and it could be non-credit tenants in the other. If the two assets are equal in quality, the one with the shorter Walt will definitely get more looks and will get better pricing, without question. Oh God, I have so many things I want to ask you, but I'm going to riff off that one thing you just said. You said that buyer pool gets narrowed and narrowed. T-bills at 4.4%. Cap rate, you kind of mentioned like a buying something at a six cap with a six percent loan on it. Who are those buyers? Like who else? Who who is this around? Is it sovereign wealth? Like who are the last buyers that kind of stay around when this is all happening? I mean, there's always buyers for things. I mean, it's a relative value thing. Right. I mean, you're able to buy real estate today versus the past three years at really good numbers. Yep. And if you're purely a real estate buyer and it's part of your alts your alternative uh, investment side, let's just say you're a sovereign wealth fund and say, I don't know, uh, 7% of your portfolio goes to alternatives. And you know you hope to have a good percentage of that in real estate. Well, I mean, this is a great relative value play. You're buying real estate at substantially off peak pricing. You're not that worried about the debt. You have money to place and you can go all cash. Mm. And so... Those are buyers. They're buyers like ourselves who are absolutely out there, who are seeing this as we're able to buy assets at far below replacement cost in markets that we have never been able to fully penetrate, like the Inland Empire or you know Jersey, et cetera, because the buyer pool has so substantially thinned and the assets being sold are that we're looking at are very quality. I mean... We're saying like we can get in on these properties at opportunistic type returns, irrespective of the leverage we're using. In many cases, it's almost you're you're better unlevered than levered in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But from our standpoint, as long as a deal uh, doesn't have a long-term lease in place uh, and we can get to that value relatively quickly, I mean, we're really excited about that opportunity. Yeah. And so there's buyers out there, but the fact that we're able to participate in these core traditionally core markets and get value add to opportunistic returns on trophy assets is saying something about the depth of the buyer pool, which is very limited. Conversely, we have sold a whole bunch of assets to users at amazing pricing. So the users have filled in a lot of that void mm. as rental rates have continued to rise. Yeah the users have been able to come out and say, we want to own our facilities. And they've been previously priced out by the investor market. Well, now they're getting the opportunity to buy those assets. So recently there were two assets that we sold prior to even taking possession of the assets. They were forward sales. And we just sold off the contract. Or we closed the two deals simultaneously where we wow. you know, bought it and they bought it from us. But we're seeing that not on a one-off basis, we did five last month of user sales. Wow. 
And is that them coming to you or are you going to them? Both, both. You know, something that we focused on, Chris, over the years is we wanted to make sure that the assets we're buying are selected one at a time and that they're, you know, optimally last mile. They are best in class or have some of the best features within that given area if, you know, uh, given the asset ages and that the assets, irrespective of what will happen in a market, that there'll be demand for those properties because they're some of the best properties. So what that meant is we weren't buying portfolios and getting stuck with a whole bunch of assets that just got thrown in there. And by buying an asset one at a time and looking at the value of that asset itself and doing the hard work and rolling up your sleeves, just like you do. Buying properties, $10 million, $20 million, and doing the hard work. What happens is as the markets have shifted, like today where debt is harder to come by, well, we can go and take advantage of selling to users. And our leasing activity is still very strong. Yep. And that's because we have the right assets in the right locations and we bought them for the right prices. And so if you select your assets one by one, you're not beholden in the same way to the market and you're able to take advantage of whatever the market is providing you. So today it's to users or it may be to get those tenants out there at the best rates who are out there. Or to be able to sell to an investor a smaller deal with a shorter walt because you have exactly what they want. If people do like you and I do, then they're much better off when the market changes. And I don't need a crystal ball to tell you, it always changes. Yeah. Okay, let's just go in our own backyard for a second. You probably already answered this question in different ways, but a lot of folks that talk about DFW, which has been an incredible industrial market, and we could talk about the, the, the drivers behind it, but they'll say, yeah, but y'all have 55 million square feet of new product coming online. It's going to maybe not crash the market, but that's always kind of the rebuttal. And again, I think you've already touched on like how to answer this, but if I said, what do you say to the person that says, yeah, but y'all have 55 million square feet being delivered in your backyard. Clearly, that's going to be a, more of a negative than a positive. How do you answer that? Well, I mean, it's obvious that the more product you have out there, you know, if, if leasing isn't as robust as it was at the height, then it's a negative to a degree. But unlike other markets, I mean, I don't know the exact stat right now, but I remember it was... It was it last year where we had 30 million feet of absorption? I think it was more than that. You, you might know the exact stat. No. I get market right. merged because we're, we're nationwide, but yeah. Dallas has some of the most absorption of anywhere. And so it's a big difference. Yes, we are putting a lot of product online, but companies want to move here for a reason. And people are moving here for a reason. There's not a day that goes by, and this is just personal, you know, on a personal note, where I don't encounter people who live in Dallas, whether they work in our office or whether I know them personally, who aren't from Dallas originally, myself included. Yeah, me too. There are a lot of people who move to Dallas for good reason, and it continues to be the case. And we don't see that slowing. As a recession hits, those who are hit hardest are traditionally your blue collar and your middle class. And people forget that any tax increases or call it additional bureaucracies that are being added to states impact these wage earners the most. You know, if you're increasing your your income tax or your minimum wage, well, guess what? I mean, the guy who is making $5 million a year, he'll pay additional cost of his groceries. It's not going to change his life. He's going to eat the same thing. But that individual who's making fifty or eighty thousand dollars a year, and their grocery bill ends up being three hundred bucks more a month, it starts to eat into what they can do. And then you throw in your housing costs, et cetera. Well, guess what? Those are all great reasons for people to move to Dallas. Amen. And so they come here, and it's not just me saying it; it's in the stats. People are moving here. Businesses are moving here, and it's also where is the product being built in South Dallas? my impression, there's going to be a bloodbath. Mm, Why? Because something we talked about on the last podcast, but just the fundamentals as, as we know them in supply chain, where 
you know, the movement of goods or your transport is 45 to 75% of your cost and your labor is 15 to 25. And then you have your inventory and all the way down to your real estate at three to 6%, which is why, you know, rents continue to go up because if you're closer to those consumers or workforce, then guess what? You're able to, it makes sense for a tenant to pay a higher rent because they reduce those more impactful costs. Well, in South Dallas, they built so much and your workforce was already so small. And although it increased over the past five or 10 years substantially, it's still very small. So if you have to pull workers from say East Dallas to South Dallas, and somebody's got to drive 20 minutes there on average, let's say for an e-commerce sorting facility, that's going to cost at a very minimum, a buck more an hour to that employee. And you multiply that across a warehouse's workforce. And that equates to double your real estate cost if you're a company. Meaning if you have to get your workers driving 20 minutes to your facility and you have to pay them a dollar more an hour, it's the equivalent of you doubling your rental expense because Mm -hmm. it's that much more significant on the supply chain side. And South Dallas, you don't have that workforce. East Dallas, we see there's been a lot of building and we've built a ton there. And we've seen tremendous absorption because of the workforce itself. I'll tell you a little story that, that illustrates this best. We owned an asset that we bought from, I think it was state of Alaska, a number, a number of years ago. And we bought it in partnership with a terrific group, AEW. And this was a property that compared to brand new 36 clear product was clearly not there. I mean, you had uh, 28 clear ceiling heights. You had a truck court that was a little too shallow. And it just didn't have all the best-in-class features that a new building had. But what it did have was a piece of land in front that was 12 acres. And you had the ability to expand that truck court and make a very large parking facility. And it had the proximity to the workforce. Anyway, we bought the building for a song, really for nothing at the time. And there was a tenant in there, and the tenant had done a built-to-suit in South Dallas. And it was a certainty they were leaving. They just leased a new building in South Dallas. Now, also this building had direct rail access, the one we, we had. And so there were a lot of benefits to it, but here they were getting best in class new product. And we had a bet internally, and it was, I don't remember what it was for, it was five bucks or something, at uh, myself, my counterpart at AEW, bet on it. And we had the bet for the Dolphin side that this tenant was going to try to sublease their building in South Dallas and renew at our facility at a higher rate than they were paying in South Dallas. Mm. So they were gonna renew at a higher rate in a building built in 1989 versus that building that was built in, I don't know, 2017 or so. And it was a bet that we actually won because in fact, the tenant tried to do it. They were willing to renew at a higher rate because they recognized they couldn't get the workforce and it was costing them more. And so that was just an illustration of understanding that a place like South Dallas, although eventually it will be a terrific market and there has been absorption there, I think it's been absorption as a function of there's been such demand in the Dallas market. But as the market pulls back, tenants want to go to better locations if they have those options. And so uh, it'll be a tale of you know two cities, meaning that there are going to be locations in every major metro, Dallas included, that will suffer from overbuilding simply because there was more land. And there are other areas that will see an increase in demand because tenants in down markets will gravitate to your better buildings because suddenly they can get them at more affordable rates than they otherwise could have in the past. Yeah. Okay, let me tie a couple things together. So workforce costs more the further they have to get to the building. That's just like increasing your labor cost which is is a direct impact on what they can pay on real estate. Then you've mentioned the term best in class new product, how people are building buildings. The third leg of this question is like robotics. You can answer this however you want. You've built a lot of buildings all over the country for all different types of tenants. How many of these tenants are really using sophisticated robotics to maybe offset that labor force that they can't get? Is it just the Amazons of the world and the biggest, or are you seeing a difference in what tenants are asking for and how they're using the building? And you can answer this however you want. 
It's definitely more than before. Okay. I mean, even here in Dallas, we have a facility that a furniture distributor and the whole facility is automated. There are, we have on our advisory committee, an individual who runs a, a very large international shipping company and freight forwarding company. And, and, and in their warehouses, globally, they're starting to use certain sorting systems that are minimizing you know, the aisle spacing or taking it out entirely. Because if they don't, they don't need the people there, what they can do is pack and pick from you know, the top rack anywhere at the same speed or quicker than they could if they had people there. And how much are we seeing that though? Not that much. I mean, you're seeing robotics, but it's taking time because there's the difference. There's the, I need my product now, which most of us do. Yep. And then there's, I wanna build for the future. And so you're definitely seeing the proliferation of this technology. One presentation I recently saw was from a company, an AI-based company, that what they do is they hook into the, the camera system of a given warehouse operator, and they will monitor the movements of the people over the course of, say, uh, a month. Thereafter, they will give someone schematics for designs on how to build their engineers by trade, actual machinery to replace the people. And so you're seeing that happen, but it's very costly and it takes time. Yep. And so just like a few years ago, there were only a few Teslas on the road and then suddenly everyone you know has one. I think that it's going to be like that. And you know, as a result of wages continuing to rise, which is wonderful for the people getting the wages, you start legislating that stuff. What happens is exactly what you'll see in any airport, in, uh, especially in, in certain states where you go in there and there's no longer people. It's a kiosk. And so that company can say, yes, we're paying our workers 22 bucks an hour, but instead of having 15 workers at that facility, they have one. And so you're going to see that more and more. I just don't believe we're seeing it everywhere right now because there's a lot of cost that goes into it. And, you know, it's like Moore's law as technology, you know, it, it doubles every year in speed and, and, and the cost also diminishes. Yep. And so as the cost diminishes, you're going to see that more, but it's certainly going to come. Is that an argument for bullish rents? Because the more robotics lo lowers the labor pool. And when leases turn, there's obviously more margin to capture back. It's a point that I hadn't frankly thought of, but I think there's a lot of variables in there. So, Chris, I can't really give you an answer if, if that is a, a bullish point for rent. Arguably speaking, you could say that facilities will need less warehouse. Yep. Okay. Okay. Because if they're reducing the, you know, your aisles, any turning lanes for, for forklifts, et cetera, they're just going to need less space from a packing standpoint. But what that means is space maybe that you or I own is going to get even more valuable because unless you have that teleporting machine they had in, in Star Trek, <laughs> you still got to get the goods to the consumers or the businesses somehow. Yep. And that means the closer you are to those consumers or those businesses, the less it's going to cost to get the goods there. Okay. On that notion of smaller spaces, possibly in the future, one of the questions I had going back to leasing activity. So we've kind of said, look, leasing has softened, but it's still on par, if not better than 2019, and we're just off our highs. But if you had to break leasing down by million square foot leasing, you know, 500s, 250s, like where is, how do you categorize leasing activity based on size right now of tenant? Again, it's a tale of two cities and it's just in certain markets, you're seeing big demand for large base spaces. Okay. Over a million. What would characterize a market that is, uh, has high demand for million square feet? Say the IE, say the IE. Okay. Inland Empire. Okay. If you have over a million, you're going to have, you know, people vying for that space, a okay. lot of companies. But if you're a hundred thousand, it's crickets. Really? Yeah. And that's an anomaly. Well, it's not an anomaly because it's happening. And it, I mean, it's just the nature of the market today. So what we're seeing is a good amount of activity in small, in smaller spaces in some markets. Yeah and larger spaces in others. So we have assets in West Palm Beach, for example, and there's lots of demand for smaller spaces, spaces under 40,000, 40, 
but in spaces above, say, 60,000, 50, 60,000, it's a much smaller pool. Interesting. And it's not something that we anticipated, but it's definitely happening. In general, I would say the market trend is the smaller, the better right now. I'm not talking about incubator smaller, but I'm talking about at least in what we do, because we're not really familiar with incubator, but it's more of, you know, your 25,000 square foot to, you know, uh, 100, 150s, you're typically good right now. In some markets up to 250, but the 300 plus, it's slow nationwide, or at least it was slow during the summer. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that with a grain of salt because we've seen a real uptick in leasing activity since, call it, maybe the heat broke in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. I have been thinking about this thing you said earlier in the conversation. I just can't get away from it. So we're going to go back real quick to lending for a second. And I'm just, I, I just want to make sure I understood this right. If a bank has a loan on a, a new development industrial building that, again, took longer, probably cost more, all those things. And then they also, and let's say it's a $50 million loan. I'm just picking a number. Then they have a $50 million loan on a Class B suburban office that's just structurally toast. Did you say that they're probably more likely to want to foreclose on that industrial loan and get it off the books because they know they can get all their money back at par than they would try and work on this janky loan that might like they're, they're more likely to go after this more solid asset and then hold this $50 million office loan or sell it at a discount or whatever. Is that kind of what you said? Uh, it is what I said, but there's uh, a nuance to that explanation. Okay. And so that's not, in my belief, going to happen right away across the board. Okay. But if you think about it, these jinky loans are the ones that are office that can't be refinanced. They can't be refinanced. Yeah. And so in most cases right now, what's going to end up happening is they really want to extend that loan as much as possible mm. within reason, pretend and extend. Okay. Because the moment they recognize that loss, that loss, you know, they have to take back that asset. I mean, they're probably better off. I'm, I'm not a banker, but I would guesstimate as probably they could liquidate that loan at 40 cents on the dollar. And they're better off than holding it on book from a defaulted office standpoint. So if they could sell that loan at 40 cents, they're better off. Okay. But if you have that asset, you can push out the problem. So you, maybe you put some reserves against that asset. You say it's worth a bit less, but the operator is continuing to operate it and you're not taking the keys back, you're not realizing that significant of loss because you haven't had to mark that asset so substantially. In terms of industrial, they know or believe that they can get the value out of those assets because they're certainly worth more than the debt in the vast majority of the cases. Yeah, for sure. And so it, it's just logical to think eventually, given that the repayment rates probably 2%, if that, nationwide on commercial real estate right now, annually. And you're having mounting pressure on the side of commercial lenders to, you know, bring down their losses, call it. And the way they're able to book losses and book gains, as I mentioned, if they say, okay, I have to extend this loan, then they, they extend this particular loan on industrial building. They take a loss of 20%, they booked that as a troubled loan, then they're able to sell that asset, maybe it's six months later, at 100 cents on the dollar, or even more, because it's definitely worth more than the debt, they've now booked a gain. And so there is an incentive to do that because it's one of the assets, the few assets they can move, and they can move for all like 100 cents on the dollar. Yep. You know, you asked me earlier in the conversation, how was it that we were able to get such a good deal from an institutional open-ended fund, yeah. you know, in such a core market, the one I mentioned in Orange County. And the reason is, is because they had to sell something to meet redemptions. Mm. And what did they sell? Well, they sell, sold the most liquid of what they could sell, and yeah. that was industrial. And so it's logical to think banks would do the same thing. It's only going to be so long that your banker buddies are going to say, it's okay, I'll just give you that extension. Eventually, they're going to get pressure internally. They're going to have to get some money back on their books. Yep. Okay. I want to just pivot a little bit 
industrial outdoor storage. I think when we talked two or three years ago, it was maybe becoming a thing. I don't even think we had coined it iOS yet. Maybe we had, but I was late to the party. We, we sit here two, three years later. Wow, this thing's come like quick. And I know y'all are getting into it. Why are y'all getting into it? And kind of how do you view that world? And do you view it differently than traditional industrial? Yeah, so I think when we talked a few years ago, we were, were definitely not active in the space. Although we had owned iOS sites, we didn't even term them iOS. Yeah. And we were buying them because of the real estate that sat there, you know, the, the building. This, the site was just in the, you know, parking lot or whatever store, you know, pipe lay, lay down yard was, was a benefit. It was an ancillary benefit of the facility. But yes, we have a, a venture with Centered Bridge that we're buying quite a substantial amount of this product in primarily the coastal markets throughout the country. And our perspective on it is, in many cases, it's irreplaceable real estate. What is iOS? And so iOS has a number of different definitions. One of the definitions that we can all, you know, understand is, you know, you drive by a port and you see the shipping containers piled up on land, you know, on a lot, you know, and they're piled six high in certain cases. Well, that's like an iOS site. You have a FedEx facility where you have trucks parked outside. That's another iOS. And then you have, you know, your, your truck terminals. That's another version of iOS. You have your, I mean, even you can be storing boats, although that's a little bit niche, but you have contractors that they have their machinery or, or their materials being stored on a site, iOS. You have somebody who's your carpet cleaning company or, or call it a, a pest control guy who has got a lot of trucks, right? And, and they need a ton of parking and they only need 2,000 square feet of space. That's also iOS. And so I'm mentioning all these things is because it is a critical component of one last mile, but also there is a necessity for this space in every single metro market. And it's very difficult to find, and the market is incredibly fragmented. Over 95% of iOS is owned by mom and pops. Mm. If you want to go online and you're a tenant, and let's say you want to go on a co-star or something, and you want to see what's your availability of iOS in a given area, you can't really find anything because CoStar doesn't really track most of the data because the mom and pops who own it, they're not submitting any of those details to CoStar. What we did was in every market that we operated on, we literally hired people to do an extensive surveying of that entire market using aerials and calling every facility and getting as much data as possible to canvas an entire market every sub-market in that market and know each and every uh, iOS facility in the market and using a zoning map as their basis for that template, understanding at least on a high level what's permitted within these markets. And what did we find? What we found was in many markets, there were iOS sites that were not actually properly zoned. And so it comes down to why is iOS so interesting for us? One, it's a fragmented market. And when there's dysfunction in a market that's fragmented and there's high demand, which there is, that means that we're going to be able to take advantage of that. We're going to be able to buy assets at you know very good prices off market from smaller sellers. We're going to be able to move markets by buying enough bulk in that market. I mean, here's an example. We had a facility that we just bought in Jersey where a tenant was paying $3,000 a month per acre. The only comparable facility that we could find, the lowest comparable comp we could find, sorry, was 25,000 an acre. Okay, so what you're able to do is you're able to get that information out there also and make the market more aware. So it's a benefit for us if the lady across the street is now charging 25,000 an acre as well. Yeah. And what we also found is that cities hate it. And oh, it's, yeah. they hate it for a reason, because it's ugly. It is. It's ugly, the certain sites with environmental issues. And so what does that mean? That means cities aren't going to be likely to ever want to zone sites iOS. 
I mean, they don't want to zone them nice industrial buildings. They're certainly not going to want to zone them iOS. And so it's a finite resource. Home Depot, you know, Amazon, FedEx, and many, many companies rely on these facilities in order to make their transport costs cheaper. So they don't have to store those facilities, you know, 60 miles outside of town and then drive, you know, to their work site every day or wherever they're going. And so these are critical components of our supply chain. And they're a finite component because many people who bought them were just land banking. We know cities don't want to continue to zone anything iOS. And we know that there's high demand and a dysfunctional market. You add all those together and we see a real opportunity to make outsized returns. Do you think, and I will, we'll tie this into maybe just your view of the supply chain and how it continues to evolve, is part of the reason why there's such high demand is because the supply chain continues to change. You have more of these you know, trucks on our roads that are delivering product. You have more tenants that need to be closer to their customer. Maybe just the question we'll tie it into is, how do you see the supply chain continue to evolve as we are today and just kind of as we're going forward. When I say that to you, what comes to mind that excites you about where supply chains are headed? I think the exciting part about our industry is that nothing is changing the dynamic of the supply chain cost matrix, meaning that transport is still your number one cost and e-commerce is continuing to grow. We are in a society of now. We want everything now, instantly. And the more that, I mean, Instacart just came out with their IPO today, but we are an Instacart world and we want everything now. And if you want it now, well, you wanna be able to make a profit, then you have to be close to your consumers who are consuming those goods. And therefore our real estate continues to be more valuable, whether it be iOS, or whether it be traditional industrial or smaller bay industrial that that you, from my understanding, go after, Mm -hmm. it's going to continue to increase in value. And I can tell you one thing that's another certainty. Cities hate industrial. Even Texas, even in Dallas. We were refused for a number of projects in Dallas itself, in conservative leaning areas. People just wanted their call it their Amazon package very quickly. They just didn't want to see the trucks. Yeah. And we get that. I mean, I get that logically speaking, but with that, it's going to be harder to get the, the zoning or the entitlements, or it's going to be much more costly to do so uh, in the future because the gig is up on industrial before we could fly under the radar today. We can't. Yeah. So that means our product gets uh, more valuable. What, what do you what do you think about Amazon? It seemed just from my perspective, we don't do anything with them. There was this they were growing like crazy. And then there were news a couple of years ago that now they're choking back. Then they were going to maybe own their own buildings. I mean, there was kind of just to be honest with you, even for someone that's in industrial, it was just more confusing than anything for someone that's worked with them and, and built for them and remains really close to just that part of the world. Wh- what's going on with Amazon? How do you think about them? They're very, they're very active. Okay. Right now. Great. They're very active on their last mile, uh, fulfillment centers, big facilities, or um, like are, they sh- are they niching down into smaller spaces? I think it's probably across the board, but more of their smaller facilities, the infill product. Okay. I mean, traditionally speaking, infill by nature is smaller just because the land somebody can get is smaller. There were higher and better uses in the past than industrial yep. office, shockingly, and, and other product <laughs> types, you know, enclosed malls. But they, you know, if they could go after million foot fulfillment centers, uh, they would, I'm sure. But I mean, we're we're negotiating deals with them right now and they're very, very active. And because they've figured it out much before any other companies. And that's what they recognize. The more drop-offs that they can do in a, a single van leaving that facility, the more households they can hit to drop off those goods and come back within, say, an hour or two, the more profitable they are. And the network they've built out, they've recognized now they're able to achieve profitability, as we've seen in their financials, on the delivery side. And it's going to increase. And they're going, as they've done, force companies to either uh, pay a fee or use their logistic services. So that's going to bolster it even further. 
And so uh, they're extremely active. When they made that announcement a few, it was a couple of years ago, we should have charged them at least a quarter more on every lease that we you know, did with them after that because of the, all the problems that they caused for our investor base and the phone calls that I got. <laughs> you know, they announced they were subleasing 10 million feet at a 400 million feet. <laughs> Two and a half percent. It's, it's rounding error, okay? And they weren't giving up the space. They were subleasing it, which means that they still wanted optionality to get into that space. We actually had a 40,000 square foot space that one, was one of their spaces that they subleased. They were leasing it at roughly 750 a foot. We released that space at like 11 bucks, okay? Within one month, they were still paying rent. We said, you know, we're going to go direct to the your sublease tenant and we leased it at like 11 bucks or something. I mean, it was a big benefit for us, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a real change to their philosophy, although the announcement made a lot of news. So I would say that Amazon is very busy right now from what we've seen. And there are another com- uh, n- a number of companies who also are, I would say, in large part, corporate decisions are taking slower, a, lo- a longer time to ink those deals. Yeah. Are we 95% occupied because demand is, is just growing in a way that it, it hasn't historically if we go back decades? Or are we 95% occupied because we just can't build it like we used to? I know that's kind of a chicken and egg, but maybe the question is more like, are the fundamentals of the world changing so much that it's almost in any one 10-year span impossible for supply to keep up? Or have we just gotten so damn slow at building that demand's pretty good, but we're just now not good at putting product on the ground? I think demand's just higher today. Yeah, That's all there is to it. Demand is higher. Yep. You have your e-commerce continues to grow and you have a change in the nature of the way we do business. Uh, you also, you know, companies recognize they want to be, have, have maybe if they're going to nearshore or onshore, you know, they're going to have more manufacturing requirements. You're going to be building semiconductor plants. You still have your traditional industrial companies, or at least the ones that were there pre-e-commerce, and they still need the space. And as a percentage, uh, I mean, everything in this office or that we're wearing, I mean, it's all been an industrial building. And those demand drivers continue to be there, and they've only increased. And so I just think that there's... Uh, it's a sector of the commercial real estate space, which has a lot more legs. And the last part about it is that just the supply chain cost. Real estate is still the smallest component of that. And so you have a lot of room to raise those rents as long as you're able to positively or, or call it reduce the, the, the impacts of the more important variables like transport or labor by being closer to the workforce or the customer. You're able to keep charging more, and there's a lot of runway for us to continue to increase that as long as the demand is there. And that's not the same for any other product type. I mean, especially multifamily. There's only so much you can raise people's rents before they can't pay bills. I mean, you know, red or blue state. I mean, I don't think any politician is going to allow for a mass eviction because multifamily landlords budgeted too high a rental rate. And so they have to keep increasing it. They won't allow it, but I don't see any politicians stepping in if industrial rents double. (laughs) You know, so... That's not going to be the hill they (laughs) die on. (laughs) All right. We're in an interesting place in the world. If you were going to get... if you're, We kind of talked about buying, but this is kind of like... If anybody's listening to this that has a deal that they want to bring to Sean, we're going to end it on this. Like, we can break it up into acquisition versus development. What needs to be in place right now for you guys to pull the trigger on buying a deal and maybe answer it two part acquiring deals that are already existing and maybe new development deals. We have a built to core account as well. Okay. So we'll start with the built to core. It's got to be in the coastal markets, or I would say, uh, There are a few select markets like Tampa, Orlando, that we do continue to love. Very infill Dallas, we do as well. But on a yield to cost basis, 
I mean, we're, we're, we're looking, let's say it's in a coastal in the high sixes or definitely in the sevens for any of the secondary markets I mentioned. It's, it's a, that's a particular vehicle though. In general, we're focused on class A product or what is perceived as class A. Cause let's say you have very infield Jersey where, you know, it's not the same as class A here, but the locations are, you know, irreplaceable for it's gotta be class A preferably leased, but doesn't have to be. And we have to feel that we're buying it at below replacement cost. Or if we're not, then you can't replace it anyway, because there's no dirt there. I would say we're being extremely cautious in what we buy. uh, And we expect there to be a lot more pain out there. And we want to have the dry powder to take advantage of that. But with that said, we are actively buying deals and close them regularly. Although it's a small percentage of what we did in in the past times, that's just because we believe there's going to be continuing opportunities. So I would say, uh, bring us deals that are class A, bring us deals that are in coastal markets or that are in top major metros and very infill in those markets. And we'll look at everything. We'd rather look at it and, and, and say it doesn't work for us than, than not having seen it at all. Sean, this was fantastic. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and having me on. Of course. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 